we've talked about the Europe quality, you know, and, and it continues to outperform. I think that the risks in the market really don't do a lot to sway us from defensive growth at this point. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. With political uncertainty growing in the U.S., Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKinney regroup on the best strategies to ride out the market jitters. From European equities to premium yield ETFs, our experts outline satellite positions that go hand-in-hand with a defensive growth exposure. They also recap the core holdings, which have helped institutional investors navigate volatility, such as quality, low vol, and core beta. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Hello, I'm your host, Mark Reyes. I'm the head of product for BMO Game Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We'll be joined today by Chris McKaney and Chris Heeks, both our portfolio managers from our ETF desk. Um, work together covering equities and derivative-related strategies, but of course have a wider knowledge of the entire shelf. So thank you, Chris and Chris, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Now let's uh, let's dive right in. Let's start with all the unrest that's continuing to grow down in the U.S. Uh, you've got COVID cases continuing to mount, and of course, we heard President Trump last week musing about pushing out the election date. Now, regardless of how that played out, where of course many were quick to say he didn't have the authority to delay the election. It does bring to mind the possibility of uh, you know, market jitters and volatility uh, leading into the election. We've been consistent on a defensive growth theme with coupled with satellite opportunities to capture you know, some of the market growth trends out there. But how would you suggest playing this risk into the fall? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mark, and good to be back on the call after a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think there's there's nothing in what you said that that really sways you away from a, a defensive growth approach, where you know we're emphasizing, you know, our U.S. quality ETF, you know, as well as a little bit of low vol as well. Um, you know, you look at the troubles they're having, you know, with the COVID, and you know, it's they're not the only country in the world, but certainly, you know, um, you know, they've been a market leader for many years and, you know, the problems with COVID and, you know, the incoming election volatility are kind of reasons why you might start to uh, question perhaps whether they will have that same degree of leadership, kind of at least in the near term. Uh, so I think overall, you know, you still stick with that defensive growth, you know, it's another U.S. quality has, um, has really good exposure to, um, high quality tech and we saw tech earnings continue to lead the market and, and, and there was multiple beats there from apple facebook amazon uh, microsoft so i think you know you continue to lean into that um, i think higher quality companies are ones that are better positioned to manage you know covid related um you know issues so i, I think that's your that's still your your pillar in the, in the u.s um another way i think that's interesting to play it is with our z pay uh, the BMO premium yield ETFs, 
um, and which also have in a hedged form as well as a U.S. dollar unit. Um, the equity weight in that fund right now is about 35%, and you know utilizes that that innovative option overlay where we're selling calls against the 35%, much like a covered call ETF. But then on the other 65%, we hold a T bill and we're selling puts against that. You know, and effectively what happens is if the market sells off, you know, those puts get assigned and when we increase our equity weight position. And we launched the product in January and it served us very well through that, you know, kind of acute phase of COVID where, you know, the market sold off quite a lot in March. You know, we, we built our equities to 65, 70%. And then as equities rallied, we began to, to lighten up on those equities as well when we started selling calls and then those calls would get called away. So again, you know, the Z-Pay, the premium yield, we're doing it on quality stocks as well. So it's a factor we like. And I think it's just, you know, it's markets may be setting up for a similar, um, you know, like you say, if this volatility of the election really comes to fruition, you know, I'd rather buy stocks a little bit cheaper than they're trading right now. Uh, so it's got a yield of 6% tax efficient. You know, the biggest risk with the premium yield from that perspective is, you know, equities really take off. But I would say, you know, to your point, I think the risk is perhaps a little bit more to the downside than to the, you know, really strong right side right now. So I really like that one as kind of a holding holding vehicle. And if, if we get a sell-off, we'll buy more stocks as, as they go down. On, you know, we'll buy quality stocks. And that's, if markets go higher, we're, higher, we just continue earning that 6% yield. So I like that one. And, uh, you know, and then the, the other thought that comes to mind is, you know, we have to start thinking outside the U.S. as well. And we talked about emerging markets on the call uh, last time, um, you know, and I think that continues to be an interesting area where you're seeing, um, you know, really good, obviously, long-term secular growth trends, um, you know, into, you know they're, they're becoming uh, consumer economies, much like the U.S. So, you're, you're, you know, I think you see, you know, attractive exposure there. Um, EM, we talked about that in length last time. You know, Europe, I think, is also, you know, interesting. And then we've talked about the Europe quality, you know, and, and it continues to outperform. I think that the risk in the market really don't do a lot to sway us from defensive growth at this point. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Good to see that we're staying consistent uh, with the messaging. Now, we've passed through another month end. It's been another strong month with ETF flows uh, here in Canada, uh, over $6 billion net flows. Uh, and we did see a big jump in fixed income flows. Now, we can discount the fact that some asset managers are using ETFs uh, with, with large trades into their own products, but we are still seeing some significantly sized uh, external trades within fixed income ETFs. So what advantages are you seeing from using fixed income ETFs over direct bond portfolios that really apply through to the advisors on the call? And as well, where have you been seeing these fixed income flows headed? Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And certainly it was a, a big month for fixed income uh, ETFs in, in July in Canada. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a couple things going on here, and, and one of it is simply the market movement. You know, as equities continue to grind higher, I think investors just want to maintain their balanced exposure, whatever that target asset allocation is that they're looking for between stocks and bonds. And as equities rally, um, you almost need to invest more into bonds to, to, to keep that ratio somewhat in line. And, you know, to to the points that we were already talking about in the previous question, um, 
you know, wanting to maintain a defensive posture overall as, you know, risks are still out there, obviously, um, in the global economy. And so maintaining some of that safety of of fixed income is is what uh, investors are looking for. But I think for the most part, particularly from the advisor side, is the episode we saw through March and April um, in the fixed income market, I think you know, people are really starting to do an analysis on that and looking back and thinking, you know, if I'm holding these bonds and we face another issue like we had in March, um, I'm not going to be able to sell these bonds. If I need to raise cash, I'm not going to be able to sell these things at a a reasonable price. Um, And and so with fixed income markets themselves potentially seizing up, um, you know, investors are realizing and advisors are realizing through that period in March and April, the liquidity that the fixed income ETF actually offered. And it did trade throughout the day, you know, traded away from NAV, whatever that may mean. I think investors are starting to realize discounts or premium to NAV in the fixed income world when there's stresses like that don't necessarily mean much. All it means is that the ETF is still trading. And that potentially is the true uh, clearing price for the bonds that you might hold. So liquidity of the ETF wrapper, I think, is a big thing. The other thing is being able to trade in a similar way across all of your clients' portfolios. So you can bulk trade an ETF um, and buy one ticker, and that goes into all your clients' portfolios. Uh, Whereas if you have individual bonds, you have to try and buy and sell and allocate across different accounts. It's just a lot more uh, work for advisors to do. And if you can maintain that same exposure by buying or selling one ticker, um, I think investors are starting to figure out that that makes a lot of sense and you're still getting that exposure and you're getting that almost increased liquidity in those times of stress. Um, in terms of where we've seen flows, um, certainly aggregate bond universe um, is still very popular. That's ZAG for us, the ticker. Um, and again, I think that's part of that asset allocation play, keeping the keeping the equity fixed income mix um, you know, somewhat reasonable, you know, simply buy those universe bonds uh, and, and you'll get that exposure. We've also seen a lot of flows into the very short end of the curve as, you know, yield curves are still somewhat flat um, and investors, um, you know, don't want too much volatility under their fixed income. They want that cash-like exposure to, to have that money ready um, should they need it. Um, so on the super short end, uh, the BMO Ultra Short Term, ZFP, uh, saw some nice flows, and we saw similar flows into other ETF providers into the, into the very short end also. Um, and then we also saw just some spread um, exposure, so corporate bonds or, or provincial bonds as well. And I think that's investors just trying to get a little bit of that yield pickup. Obviously, the yields are extremely low right now, particularly in governments. Um, and so when you are adding to that, fixed income exposure, getting a little bit more of a pickup, whether that's through corpus or provincial bonds, depending on the the risk exposure that you want to add to the portfolio, Um, but trying to eke out a little bit more return out of that fixed income. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And just looking at the flow tables, I'll, I'll mention active global fixed income as well. Of course, we usually think of, you know, passive exposures from ETFs, but a lot of active out there and you know, when you go global and the yields are so low, uh, an ETF format typically lower fee, but as well where a manager can make meaningful asset allocation decisions, uh, that can be something that 
adds value to portfolios. So certainly seeing heightened interest in our ZMSB, our multi-sector uh, global bond ETF. So a lot of other providers getting flows into global ETFs as well on the fixed income side. So certainly that is uh, an area that's picking up. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying the episode, we encourage you to tune in to our deep dive series where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM solutions. Our latest episode features the BMO Quality ETF Suite, a full complement of tools to help you access the best companies from around the world. For more information, please see the episode notes below. Now, of course, another area that gets a lot of flows and always does uh, is really the core market cap weighted ETFs, so your S&Ps 500s, your TSX composites. And we tend to talk more about the factors and, and other exposures um, as differentiating strategies. But market cap is really where the ETF business has staked its claim uh, within advisor portfolios. When we think about how much of the return of markets has been driven by you know, new economy uh, companies, both both in Canada and the U.S., we shouldn't really gloss over how ZCN, ZSP deliver these market returns. How do you see this uh, applying to advisor portfolios, where, of course, the challenge on the other side is always to demonstrate uh, value-add in the portfolios? You know, can you speak to some of the institutional strategies like Core and Explore, Core and Satellite, uh, where they're using Core ETFs and then and then allocating uh, around those strategies. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mark. And yeah, it's actually very topical right now because these sort of new economy companies, as, as you're calling them, are really moving to the top uh, of these market cap weighted indices and, and are becoming increasingly strong drivers of overall performance of the broad benchmark indices of, of the entire country. And just as investors may or may not be aware, what we've seen in Canada, and again, similar in Canada and the U.S., but what we've seen in Canada is Shopify uh, moving to the largest um, position in the TSX Composite Index. So it's the largest company in Canada right now by by market cap and uh, just over 6.7% right now. Now, the largest weight Royal Bank, which is typically been the largest uh, company in, in the index for, for the last several years. Royal Bank's highest weight ever or in recent times was 7.1%. And so actually Shopify is getting very close to that right now. And if it would pass that, it would become the largest index weight since the Nortel days. And we all know the concentration that happened back then. Um, and so increasingly what's happening in Canada is, especially if you're an active manager, um, you have this, what we're calling Shopify effect. And, and, and most managers are explaining why they underperformed the, the broad market index um, because they don't own enough Shopify and Shopify is actually driving the performance of that index. Interestingly, a um, uh, broker research did, did a, a survey of Canadian asset managers and almost every active manager um, they surveyed is underweight Shopify and doesn't even have half the weight uh, in the index. And so, you know, if you're allocated to an active manager or to just a different index or a different strategy, um, when you sit down with clients and you have this sort of performance review or review of the quarter or the year or, or whatever you're looking at, 
you have to have that conversation. Well, you understand the index is driven by this company and we own these companies. And it almost just creates an added layer of explanation or conversation that you may not need to have with your clients because clients understand one thing really, and that's, that's returns. And if you say you don't own Shopify, but it's the biggest company in Canada, the, the natural question is, well, why not? Um, and investors are, are, are realizing, you know what, if I allocate to the broad index, I have whatever, whatever is in that index, whatever's driving the return of that index is going to be owned by, by me through ZCN in this case, or through ZSP, if I'm looking at the US um, S&P 500. And we're seeing a similar thing play out there. So Apple um, is, is uh, the name that everyone talks about in the US as being the largest weight. And it is now actually the largest um, index weight in the S&P 500 in the last 40 years uh, since IBM was, was the top uh, company there. And so it's a similar thing playing out in the US as in Canada is that these few companies becoming larger weights and historically large weights, not just you know currently large weights, but historically in time, um, making up a greater part of the index. And so as an investor or an advisor, you can somewhat relax in knowing that whatever's driving those markets uh, is going to be built into your portfolios if you're allocating to that low cost, uh, efficient exposure of the uh, broad index ETF that you're buying. And then you can go on and add value around that. So you have your allocation to the U.S., you have your allocation to Canada, you have Apple, Microsoft, Shopify, whatever else is in there and whatever is driving the returns. And then you can add on around it, whether that's through a sector ETF or whether that's through one of these factor tilts that we've talked about, low vol or quality or, or other, um, or whether that be something you know, in between like those hybrid investments like preferred shares or, or high yield bonds, again, depending on investors' risk tolerance and what you're actually trying to build overall. But if the core of your asset allocation strategy is to simply allocate to the broad markets and then you build around them based on your outlook over the next 12 months or whatever the case may be in terms of how you're building those portfolios, um, you know, you can almost never touch those underlying um, core positions and then just um, allocate around them and tilt around them depending on what the current environment looks like and what you're trying to build overall for your, for your clients and for your investors. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a really good way to, to build a portfolio strategy clearly being used institutionally. So uh, a nice opportunity to take advantage of the discipline of these core ETFs in your portfolio. Now, you also, of course, touched on some of the satellite ideas, including sectors. Uh, we've seen sector plays coming back into vogue in portfolios, uh, obviously driven by the divergent returns across the sectors during the recovery. Certainly very noticeable here in Canada, um, while technology and, and, of course, gold continue to push markets higher. Um, knowing that this is a few months into the recovery, what sector plays are catching your interest now? Uh, can things like tech and gold continue to push higher? Or do you anticipate uh, sector rotation in the markets? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, we're not going to bet against tech. I mean, certainly the the, the 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 stock price, and you can see it with Apple, just took another leg up, and they've announced a stock split. But you know, the whole sector uh, with another leg up, um, you know, it, you you start to wonder. But 
but you know the, the the fact is you know the changing nature of the economy as you say the new world economy uh, favors these companies even more so you know, I think we still lean into, you know, within our defensive growth where we're leaning into the quality, we get a lot of tech exposure there. You know, certainly we want to be diversified. Um, so, we're, you know, we don't advocate 100% tech, but, you know, within that, we get a good healthy dose of tech that's performing very well, um, that has good fundamentals and strong balance sheets. So I think you still lean into there. You know, gold, in terms of gold, it's, you know, gold is always a very good diversifier to, you um, you know, to to uh, to clients' portfolios. You know, so where you have that 60-40 portfolio or 70-30, whatever the case, gold. You know, it usually gives you a very good uh, correlation, uh, lower correlation to those equities in particular. You know, it's a risk-off trade. I think what you're seeing, you know, is interesting this year, where equities obviously have gone higher over the last uh, four or five months, uh, but gold's gone significantly higher as well. Um, you know, usually they might move a little bit more um, in opposite directions. But, you know, again, gold's giving you a very good diversifier. You know, as the supply of money is expanding um, significantly, you know, with all the, the fiscal and monetary stimulus that's required, you know, I think I think that the outlook for gold is higher, you know, and I think that consensus outlook, we just crossed $2,000 an ounce, but it consistent, you know, the outlook is higher. Uh, for gold. So that can certainly help out client portfolios. And I think it's still, uh, you know, we'd advocate for a small position there. Um, you know, gold is obviously highly volatile, so you don't need a ton of it in your portfolios. Um, I actually think it sets up pretty well for the ZGD, our, our global gold equal weight equity. You know, when you're in this environment where equities are going up as well as gold is, has been going up, you know, gold equities give you that leverage to the gold price. You know, and given the stimulus of, um, you know, frankly, the stock market of equities that's been provided uh, by, by, you know, various governments. You know, I think that makes that case for you can have that gold exposure in, um, you know, in, in, in an equity gold ETF like ZGD. Uh, you know, the other, the other satellites, you know, we talked about banks and still I think banks both in Canada and U.S. Um, are very interesting satellites. In Canada, banks are yielding about 5.5%. Uh, so our ETF is, is yielding north of 5%, ZEB. We have the cover call as well. You know, historically, that valuation is a very attractive entry point for Canadian banks. And, you know, again, uh, to, to, to reiterate, they didn't cut their dividends in 2008, and we believe the dividends are safe. So, you know, I think that's a very good uh, medium-term trade as we navigate out of this, um, you know, out of these, this, these challenging markets that we find ourselves in. Um, same thing for the U.S. banks, you know, the difference being, you know, Canadian banks, a little bit more safe, you know, more collective pricing power. You know, the U.S. banks are riskier. They have riskier, you know, loans on their books. Um, they, they're more volatile asset classes, but all the same things really apply to them as well. The dividend yield on U.S. banks is now north of 4%. So a little bit of financials makes sense in there as well. And, um, you know, uh, in addition to that, you know, we also think a lot about global infrastructure, ZGI, you know, again, getting a correlation benefit to um, to equities and fixed income. You know, global infrastructure has a kind of a 0.5 correlation, whereas usually you'll see equities have kind of 0 0.7, 0 0.8, 0 0.9 correlations with each other. Uh, so it's a good portfolio building tool. And, um, you know, we're actually just to, um, you know, to highlight, we're going to have a podcast shortly, an in-depth podcast, where we're going to talk about some of these portfolio completion tools and said GI is going to be on there, gold is going to be on there. 
and uh, and REITs as well is another sector I think is interesting from more of a longer term value play. We're also going to talk a little bit about REITs. You know, we've expressed concerns about the office sector, you know, given the back to work kind of environment. Um, office is about 8% of ZRE, so we're actually underweight that relative to a market cap. But, you know, I think there will be long-term recovery in the residential and the retail REITs. I don't think, um, you know, people are going to abandon those. Um, you know, well, obviously people need somewhere to live. So residential, you know, there's obvious demand. But I think retail, you know, as stores reopen, gradually comes back. So that's another another interesting one. And we're going to, you know, talk about a few of those on the podcast coming in the next uh, next week or two as well. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, just one last quick one before we go to the lines. Uh, a bit surprising that we saw outflows in preferred share ETFs in July, since the market has been recovering, uh, of course, coupled with the RBC issuance of the LRCN bond. Do you think this is an indication of looking ahead to a shrinking market, or do you think perhaps that advisors are looking to capitalize on some of the price, recent price uh, recovery? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I think, you know, it's probably a bit of both. And, um, you know, for, for, for advisors who aren't familiar with the, with the or, or investors with this, um, what has happened in the preferred share space, um, RBC issued a novel uh, bond type um, called the LRCN, uh, which effectively gives them, um, just due to its structure, uh, it is a bond, but a, a kind of a cheaper source of financing relative to preferred shares, uh, rate reset preferred shares that are held within ZPR. You know, the yield on ZPR is about 6% dividend yield, you know, tax efficient, you get the dividend income tax credit. Um, so obviously, you know, companies are always looking for a cheaper source of funding. So what that, what that, what, what, what happened when RBC issued that is um, many market participants Participants speculated that um, RBC would call certain of its rate reset preferred shares, and, and certainly the price of those preferred shares gravitated towards $25, which is their original par. So the speculation is that um, you know this, this bond deal is about one one and a half billion. Um, there's quite a bit more uh, that RBC and all the other Canadian banks can do. There's some speculation that the Canadian insurers might be able to issue. You know, and if they do, it's gonna it's going to potentially lead to um, to redemptions in the rate reset preferred space. That's going to lead to price appreciation um, because um, you know many of these preferred shares are trading under par. It's going to kind of gravitate them closer to par. Uh, so when this kind of all kind of developed a couple of weeks ago, you know, preferred shares rallied about six to seven percent that day. So it is a, um, you know, I think it is a positive driver, you know, certainly not, you know, we're at kind of inning one, inning two of this kind of new bond and how it's going to work out in the investor demand and appetite for it. So I think there's more potential upside, certainly in the financial uh, bank reset press in particular. Um, so, you know, it is going to, you know, potentially shrink that preferred market, but in a way that's going to be advantageous for holders of ZPR. And we've seen, you know, that rally um, come to fruition. You know, in terms of risk, you know, the, another rate cut would be a risk to ZPR. But I think it is definitely very interesting at a, at a 6% yield. To, you know, again, as speaking of satellites, you know, have a little satellite position, you know, at that yield, it's, it's certainly attractive. Great. Thanks, Chris. 
At this point, I would like to check if there are any questions on the line. Yes, hi, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Chris, you mentioned Shopify on the CSX and Apple on the S&P 500, really as examples as to why it is good for investors on the index. So I wanted to ask, in your view, what's the optimal strategic allocation to call beta ETFs uh, like ZZCN or ZSB uh, for a long-term investor? Thank you. Sure, and if we take a look at it, um, you know what what you can think about is you know how how active do I want to be? So you know if you're an advisor, how active do I want to be in tilting this portfolio, or as just a, a, a an end investor, you know, am I going to set it and forget it, so to speak? You know, we we do think if you're going to set it and forget it, you know, this can make up the bulk of your allocation as that core broad beta index. It's low cost, very efficient. Um, in terms of getting that access. And so for an investor that doesn't trade around much, that, that makes a, a large part of your allocation. Um, if you're an advisor or, or even just a more active investor that wants to add around it, um, you can think about this core beta concept being you know, 60, 70, 80% of your equity allocation, if you're, if you're just talking about equities. Um, and then you can add, you know, again, around that. So if you're if you're eighty percent core beta, then you have twenty percent of your equity allocation that you can move around to different things or to different exposures or different areas. And so I think it'll depend on your individual preferences in terms of risk return, things like that. Um, and so the more you want to tilt away from it, obviously the less you have. You can have again down to maybe fifty, sixty percent into core beta. But that's the bulk of your asset allocation decision. And the bulk of your return driver is going to be from that asset allocation decision. So, you know, keep the low cost entry into your portfolio. You can kind of just put that part there and leave it. And then it's the other pieces that you can you can move around, whether that's to move your geography, your geographic exposures, or or your sector exposures or, or factors as we were talking about. Great. Thanks for the talk. Okay, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for, for listening in uh, and participating there with the question. Uh, of course, thank you to Chris McKaney and Chris Heeks uh, for your insights on the ETF market, discussions around flows, positioning, portfolios, uh, giving us some ideas and talking points to bring back to our own conversation. So that's well appreciated. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to wish everyone a great day. Uh, be well, stay healthy, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKaney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard a number of actionable strategies for managing risk amid the rising tensions in the U.S. Investors looking to complement their core positions now have an a la carte menu of investment options, which include preferred shares, gold, and global infrastructure. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please see the episode notes below, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or simply visit bmoetfs.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe, and if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please send them to Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at bmo.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. 
The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time, without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.